You know, I did want to make a comment. I know people are... are but I, let me start this way. How many, when you sang the song, Crown Him With Many Crowns, believe that from your heart of hearts? Just raise your hand if you believe that. You know, he is the king. I, I say that because I know that as we look at the events of this week in the Supreme Court, there's all kinds of responses But if you really understand that we serve not a government of this world, but a government, and we're aliens in this sense, how we handle something like this when it comes to um, the traditional value of marriage, which we as a church hold to, is incredibly important. Have you ever watched, like, we have these tennis matches coming up right now, Wimbledon, right? I think that's going to be... And how a person loses says a lot, doesn't it? And how a person wins says a lot, too. But folks, we haven't lost a thing. Our God is still in control. And he calls us to follow Jesus and to love him with all our hearts and to love those because we really believe that God is about changing hearts. Yes, we would want laws to reflect our hearts, but we live with this reality that we are about our hearts being right with him and helping all people be right with him. And so what I want to do is, I was going to read something that I I thought was really appropriate from Max Lucado. Got a whole bunch of different papers. We'll put some of these on a link. You can find them um, next week or throughout the week. We'll put some of these things so you can kind of see some different responses. I'm not going to take any more time to do that except for to call us to be people who understand that we serve a king who is not of this world, but is a king over the whole entire universe and more. So I just challenge you to go out as winners who know that God is in control and loves you. And to do so, as as Max Lucado writes, prayer, not despair. Let's pray. Father, We come before you, and we have worshipped you. And it's really interesting, God, when we take our eyes off ourselves and off the world around us and put them on you, we once again see, oh, not all the days are in on your calendar. Not all your ways have been unfolded before us. Because we live with faith and hope and love. And we pray these things. And we pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray for our churches. We pray for this world. We pray that it would be flooded with the grace and righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we all say, amen. Well, I uh, decided that we'll do the series Acceptable Addictions 2. And you might be wondering why 2. And I kind of figured since movies always have sequels, why not the church? And, and so I thought about it. We did this last summer, and we had a lot of, I think, good response from this, and I thought there's just a lot of acceptable addictions. And it's not that we're talking that there are things that are addictions that are acceptable. It's just that we kind of accept them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, these words, and these, these are kind of the words that underlie the whole series. He says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me. Now catch this. But I will not be mastered by anything. 
Now, is there anything in your life that is mastering you? And if you haven't been aware of it and someone makes you aware of it or you don't, it, it can sometimes become what I call acceptable. Things that have a hold on us that in God's eyes are not acceptable because there's to be only one master in our life and that is the master and Lord Jesus Christ. To be ruled by his love. And often these attitudes and behaviors I think can be difficult because they're not the kind of things you just go, they're evil, they're wrong. They're usually a lot of things that, that tend to be kind of something we do and then they get into that gray area. It's that gray area that is the difficulty before it moves into something more. And we kind of justify some of these things. Like 20 cups of coffee a day. And we have thoughts like when it comes to anger or, or different responses that we have in reactions. It's not that bad. That's just me. That's how I'm wired. But then we sing about what Joel had to say, which I really thought was wonderful when he was sharing about the fact that we're new creations. We're created with a new spirit in us. And although we may not be free from everything that masters us, we have the power of God to over time, which is a critical thing, over time, be set free. So last summer, I um, looked at some acceptable addictions we did as a congregation. and looked at approval, the approval addiction. We looked at the control addiction, which no one had a problem with in our church, which was amazing. Um, <laughs> the gossip addiction, being offended. And then George... Um, Kenworthy got up here and, boy, that was a a great message on greed. He talked about that. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at legalism. And and that is that sense of moving into a place sometimes where our relationships become more about rules and regulations and more about do's and don'ts than they do about the kind of freedom that God has given us through Jesus. And then we'll be looking at laziness or passivity, how easy it is for us to kind of passively move into things rather than courageously act, and then anger, judgment, but this morning I wanted to speak about hurry. Anybody here brave enough to admit that they're hurry addicted? Just raise your hand. Yeah, a few of you. I'm all in on this one. You know, the rest of you who didn't, you're probably sitting there going, get on with the message, hurry up. Um, (laughs) And I realize when we talk about this, this is, this is for some of you, you're going to go, that's just not really something I wrestle with. But my guess is you may live with someone who does, right? Or you're related to someone who does. Or you work for someone who does. And so in some ways it touches your life. This morning as we talk about what I call this acceptable addiction of hurry, I want you to, to realize that what makes this one, I think, so difficult is that we live in a culture that's addicted to hurry, right? We're trying to find everything we can so that we can be more efficient and more effective. Imagine the time when you had to actually wash and scrub your clothes by hand, wring them through. I remember this. That's, I was my grandmother. I'd go, she'd be wringing her clothes through some little thing. And then hang them on the clothesline. Or remember when you had to actually make bread from scratch? Or, or you just think of all the ways. Isn't it incredible? You simple little things. You don't even have to get out of your car to lift the garage door. Most of us, right? 
We're addicted to hurry. Let's just get past this thing, be more convenient, get to the next thing. And I really believe we're in kind of a, another kind of a culture, what I call a hurry-worry kind of culture. And it impacts our personal lives. So I want to talk about three things this morning. The culprit, what I call the consequences, and then we're going to look at the cure. And the culprit is really one that is easy for me in some sense to talk about. Because this last like February, mid-February through March, I didn't realize it, but I was ill. And I didn't even know it, really. And I felt some of the symptoms, but I really couldn't put my finger on it. I mean, it was one of those things, even in my own time of quiet, I just trying to... And I had people around me who would be speaking in my life, people who loved me dearly, who would say things like, Kevin, you need to pull back, you need to pull away, you need to get some rest, you need to let go. And what I didn't realize, that one of the things going on, among a number of them, but one of them, I was what I would call hurry sick. And the elders were gracious. They gave me a few weeks away. I went and, and spent time at a cabin. And I took the first three days and did nothing. No TV, no computer, no music, totally unplugged. Doesn't that sound like heaven for some of you? And I, and I read um, a number of books. That's one thing I did. And, and mostly stuff, for some reason, on the abolitionist movement and justice on the downtrodden and stuff like that. But anyway, when, I remember at one point I was, I was so trying to pull away and it was so hard. I felt so guilty for not getting something done and being, accomplishing something. I sat for probably 40 minutes or more looking at a bird. It was just amazing to watch it pull off the leaves and do And anyway, I, I was reading, and one little paragraph in a book I read just kind of knocked me out. It floored me. I mean, the lines from that book hit me with such force that it stopped me in my tracks mentally. And the book was by Dallas Willard, and it was called The Great Omission. Kind of a, a play on the words that we have of Jesus, the great commission called The Great Omission, and its subtitle is Reclaiming Jesus' Essential Teachings on Discipleship. And Willard makes this claim that to be a disciple of Jesus involves much more than what is expected in the church today. It involves not only the intention and commitment to follow Jesus, it actually involves doing what Jesus did, employing spiritual disciplines and practices that when you do those kind of practices, they like, you know, practice makes perfect. It has the ability through the practices to cause you to be mature. That you, it's this idea that you can't just, when you hit the moment, all of a sudden react properly unless you've been doing certain practices. The whole idea is that you can't get up if you're like twins and like, like Trevor Plouf and hit the ball unless you've been probably doing it for a long time and practicing. Or you can't be like a surgeon who comes into a situation. You have to have the knowledge base, but they've been practicing and doing it and so they can do these intricate, complex things because they have followed some certain practices. And he says that's true at large for the church. Well, here's what hit me. Willard writes, we should not only want to be merciful, kind, and unassuming, and patient persons, but also be making plans to become so. We are to find out, that is, what prevents and what promotes mercifulness and kindness and patience in our souls. And we are to remove hindrances to them as much as possible, carefully substituting that which assists Christ-likeness. And so at this point, I'm going, this is great. I'm nodding my head. This is, yeah, this makes sense. You're right. 
We shouldn't just want to do this, but make plans. So no problem at this point until I read. Many well-meaning people, Kevin, to give an example, cannot succeed in being kind because they are too rushed to get things done. That well, was kind of a first blow, staggered me a bit. And, and I continue to read, haste has worry, fear, and anger as close associates. It is the deadly enemy of kindness and hence of love. And that kind of was a second blow. I'm reeling a little bit. I decide to keep reading. If this is our problem, we may be greatly helped by a day's retreat in solitude and silence. I'm going, I'm doing this. Where we will discover, here's the thing that brought me to my knees, that the world survives even though we are inactive. That's a strange thought. Forget this author. No. There might, he says, prayerfully, there we might prayerfully meditate to see clearly the damage done by our unkindness and honestly compare it to what, if anything, is really gained by our hurry. Now this is what floored me. We will come to understand that for the most part, our hurry is really based on pride, self-importance, fear, and a lack of faith, and rarely on the production of anything of true value for anyone. And that's just not me. That's our culture, and that's many of you. So I can stand up and say, hi, I'm Kevin, and I'm a hurryaholic. <laughs> kind of like an AA meeting. And you would think I would get it because sometimes the heart isn't, bro- isn't open until it's broken. And so I was ill enough to be in that place. But I, 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 I have to tell you that it's not like this is the first time I've read anything around this. In fact, I had actually taken a guy's group on Monday mornings through a book by John Ortberg called The Life You Always Wanted, which is about spiritual practices, and he actually talks about this whole idea. John describes his own encounter with this thing in his book, and he says, I called a wise friend to ask for some spiritual direction, and I described the pace at which things tend to move in my current setting, told him about the rhythms of our family and about the present condition of my heart, or or the best I could discern it. What did I need to do, I asked him, to be spiritually healthy? Long pause. John continues, the guy says to him, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Long pause. Okay, I've written that one down, John tells him, a little impatiently. That's a good one. Now what else is there? I had many things to do, John writes, and this was a long-distance conversation, so I was anxious to cram as many units of spiritual wisdom in at least amount of time possible. <laughs> Another long pause. After he says, what else should I do? It's silent for a moment, and he says, his mentor, there is nothing else. John continues to write. He says he's the wisest spiritual mentor I've known And while he doesn't know every detail about every grain of sin in my life, he knows quite a bit. And out of this immense quiver of wisdom, he pulls this one little arrow, and it's this one. There is nothing else, he said. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That, my friends, is the culprit. Hurry. A need for speed. Living on adrenaline. Rushing about. 
racing to get somewhere, doing too much, trying to pass the guy in the lane over there and then honking your horn as you do. Living for the future. And the Apostle Paul says basically a life that is conforming to the way of the world rather than being transformed in our minds to God and his ways, which are good and pleasing and perfect, is a life that will not reflect Jesus. So here's some consequences, and I'll kind of go through a few of these really quickly. There's could list a whole bunch, but just here are some basic things that I think take place. One is this superficiality. If you're living in this sense of hurry, you've got the culprit hurry with you, here's a consequence. One of them is that hurry causes you to rush, and rush causes you to skim by things, doesn't it? To live, in a sense, life what I call thin, at a level of veneer, because depth can't be rushed. Think about it. Death always comes slowly. Some of you are parents and you get this idea that our culture sometimes wants to tell you, you've got to have quality time with your kids, right? Quality time. So you kind of schedule in your, your day, you know, I'm going to spend an hour when I get home and quality time with my kids. And it just doesn't kind of work like that. I remember one time I was going, trying to do all that stuff and when someone said to me once, these words that were really helpful, quality time is always a result or a product of quantity time. Until we took this trip, we took a three-day road trip as a family on vacation. You know what it took three days to get to a deep conversation? It wasn't until we were about two and a half days into it that things got deep because death takes time. Sometimes quality time is an accident of that kind of time spent. On Sunday mornings, I have the tendency to kind of want to rush around. And one of the things I've been working on since that time I was away was to really try as best I can to slow down. I'm doing my best at this, folks, but to slow down and to actually say hello. And and, and because I have this fear also of not remembering names and and remembering faces, sometimes it's almost easier to want to kind of just walk by like that. So I I just admit that to you and just tell you I, I, I love you and I love your grace in this. Thanks. But I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stop. I'm going to try and look deeply into your eyes. I don't want to creep you out. Okay? I mean, you maybe need to think about that. As you rush through life, it keeps it thin. It's superficial. There's another word that you could describe this kind of as a consequence. It's clutter. Hurry addicted people lack simplicity. Their lives are filled to overflowing. Their calendars and time organizers are filled with little white space. And I say it, that just hurts, right? Some of you, it just hurts. The hurry-addicted drink life from a fire hose. They acquire books and magazines they feel guilty about not reading. They purchase all these time-saving gadgets, but because you don't have the patience to read the instructions, you never really use them, right? You run from appointment to appointment rather breathlessly and show up at the next one. One biographer, it's interesting, of Lincoln said this about Abraham Lincoln, that perhaps one reason that Abraham Lincoln achieved the depth of thought that he did is that he grew up with so little to read. Not a lot of clutter. And David Donnell in his biography notes that Lincoln grew up with the access to very few books. He had the Bible, Aesop's Fables, which he actually memorized a good portion of it, and then a few others. And Lincoln's stepmother... Remembered, Abe must understand everything, even to the smallest thing, minutely and exactly. He would repeat it over 
to himself again and again. And when it was fixed in his mind to suit him, he never lost that fact or understanding of it because of that simplicity of not having so many things. He was able to go deep in these areas. And then, this is probably the most important, his inability to love. As Dallas Willard wrote, haste has worry, fear, and anger as close associates. They're kind of like right with you. And it is deadly. It is a deadly enemy of kindness and hence of love. And it's not that you even try to be unkind. It's just you don't have the depth. There's so much clutter that you don't be able, you're not able to see, you're not able to understand, you're not able to actually be present. So here's the truth. Um, when you think about this hurry addiction, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible because love takes time and time is one thing hurry addicted people what don't have so hurry the consequent is this it is the great enemy of a deeply connected spiritual life Hurry is the great enemy of a deeply connected spiritual life. Hurry lies behind much of the anger and frustration in our culture. Hurry prevents us from receiving love from our Father through simple gifts which he gives us in the moment because we rush past the present to get to the future. You may walk by a rose and not even see it, and if you do see it, you'll never stop to smell it. Hurry steals the love we're meant to share with others because we're just too busy and rush to give it. Hurry robs God's children of rich moments of gratitude and wonder. Hurry cuts you off from the kind of life Jesus lived and envisioned for his followers. And that's why when you read the Gospels, Jesus is never hurried. You, ever, you just read that and you just, he's got so much, but he just seems to do it at a pace that is in line with the Spirit, his Father. And if you think about it, if we're called to follow Jesus, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives because by definition, we can't move faster than the one we're following. Let me say that again. If we're called to follow Jesus, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives because by definition, we can't move faster than the one we are following. So the real question is this, who are you following? And there is a cure. Jesus promised that we can become unhurried people. We can actually become patient people. We can become what I call, as the Word of God says, deeply loving and connected people. We can enjoy the mystery, wonder, and grandeur of everyday life. But it will take some practices. It will take this cure, which involves these practices. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, and here's a great verse, and he calls to you, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and running around and rushed, and I will give you rest. It's kind of interesting. He says, take my yoke and learn from me. He's basically saying, take my pace. Pursue my presence. Walk in my path at my pace. And if you learn that from me, You'll find I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find that as you follow me, you'll have rest for your souls. For my yoke, my agenda is easy, and my burden is light. So that, that kind of puts it in different words for you. 
So here's some, some helpful steps I would share with you with regard to what I call this cure. How you make perfect through practice. And, and in the word of God, when it says perfect, often the word doesn't mean perfection as much as it means maturity, completeness, character. And so there is, according to what Dallas Willard says, I think something really important here that I, in my own life, am seeking to understand and learn and that I think many of you have, and and many of you have been down the road farther than I am, and I have much to learn from you, and and some of you have things to learn from others. You know, it's what's wonderful about a community, right? If we're in a learning place, we're humble. Some of these practices are just simple things that help you move at a pace that God wants you to move at. And the first one that I think is the most important practice is the practice of surrender. It's what I call the practice of surrender. Surrender always defeats pride, right? When you hold the white flag up in a war, what is it? You're not usually doing it out of a lot of pride, right? It's a humbling thing. When you cry uncle, it's a what? There is a sense that this whole practice begins if we're going to actually move into the pace that the Spirit of God calls us to that is really not conformed to our culture but being transformed because we in our mind begin to understand truths of God and begin to apply those truths of God into these practices that they begin to become a part of our life. And the first one is surrender. It breaks hurry addiction at its root. See, the root of hurry addiction is that I capital I, am critically important to making things happen. I need to get to the destination. I have to get the sales. I have to build the business. I have to create the relationship. I have to raise the healthy children. I, if you want to even go back to what it means to be saved, to walk with God, I have to be right before God. No. You think even about your salvation. Some of you may, this may be something new to you, and you've been trying really hard to be good, and if I just do it right, hopefully I'll be saved someday. Here's the whole truth that we stand under. Our whole relationship with God comes out of surrender. It's not so much, here's what you need to understand. We're essential to the equation, but we're not critical, if that makes sense. We all have a part to play, but the critical thing when you even think about salvation is all the work that Jesus did. It's all about his work. We surrender and bow to it. We say thank you that, your, that our sin has been taken, that he has given us a new life, and we let this life now begin to flow through us. And that's where our work comes in. It's just faith. And, and, and what happens in this practice of surrender is you begin to understand what I call three basic commitments the first commitment is a commitment to pursue God's presence, which is always in the present. It's not in the future somewhere. It's not in the past. People stuck in the past, people just longing for the future, miss out on, on God. It's a pursuing of his presence now in the moment, which means that if you're rushing by things, you may not see his presence. You're not really pursuing his presence. You're pursuing your aims often. Jesus loves us too much. For us to miss the moment. And he always wants us to enjoy the journey today. And surrender allows for you to come and say, say, Jesus, and if you've never done this before, it's one of the greatest things you can do in your life. Jesus, I surrender myself to you. And I'm going to put aside my agenda to allow your agenda to begin to control me. I just ask you to forgive me for putting my agenda, for putting me in my, that's called sin first. And that's something you do every day. 
into the place of faith. The next commitment is to trust God's path, which is always perfect. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit or surrender to him, and he will make your path straight. To live not rushed, willing to follow and allow God to reveal himself to you as you go. So you pursue his presence. You say, your path is best. I'm going to trust in you. And memorize Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 and say, God, this is your path. It's not my outcome. So often what, our path is about a certain outcome. And you say, you know what, God, I would like this outcome, but I'm going to trust your path and whatever your outcome is, is what needs to happen. I surrender to that. And then I commit myself to stay in step with your pace, which is always going to involve practice. I um, had the opportunity to run with my daughter, um, Kenzie, in a half marathon a few weeks back. And some of you are going, opportunity. Well, it was one of those things we prayed about. I was going, okay, Lord, my knees. And, and so I ran with her, and, and our paces are different. And to run with another person's pace... Uh, if, you've been, if you're married, you know what that's like, right? I mean, you don't even have to run. Just other people's paces, right? And so one of the things we decided to do is, as we were training up to it, on Saturdays, we're always a longer run. So seven miles, eight miles, nine, 10, 11, 12. So what, what we did is I decided, you know what? I'm going to try and run up whatever her pace is. And to do that, we would have to practice weekly. It wasn't like I was going to show up the day of the race and all of a sudden we're running our own thing and we're going to try and do that. Living and in, in walking in the sense of the presence of God, wanting to walk according to his path, and then to stay at his pace is going to take some practice. So here's some things I want to share with you. So surrender is one. Here's three other things. I'll make them quick. Slowing. The practice of slowing. You go, what's that? For those of you who are already addicted, it's like, it'll be like nails on a chalkboard, okay? I'm going to give you some things you can actually practice. Because the practice of slowing requires patience. Slowing involves cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place yourself in positions where you simply have to wait. It's like the batter who gets into the batter's cage and all he's doing is hitting it. Or like the person on the tennis court and all they're doing is returning these things. It's what you do is you get in the cage, so to speak, of a slowing moment. So you begin to cultivate patience. So here's the ones, this can be like nails on a chalkboard. Here's how you can slow your life and cultivate patience. For a month, deliberately drive in the slow lane on the expressway. Oh, (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) Instead of being angry at the person you're trying to pass, get in the other lane and let the guy pass you. When he passes, just pray, God bless that person. You'll probably get to that place five minutes later than you had planned, but it will force you to have to plan better, which is another hurry-addicted consequence. Anyway, for a week, I'm going to encourage you, eat your food slowly. Oh, no. (laughs) Force yourself to actually chew the food 15 bites rather than two like my my dog. Anyway, um, you ever seen a dog eat? They don't. They just inhale. I mean... For, for the next 40 days, here's another one. When you're in the grocery line, purposely choose the longer line. Oh, now here's the really cool thing about it. If you do that, you will not have to race to get to the shorter line and try and beat someone and you have your carts kind of hit each other and then you have this awkward moment. You actually, guess what? If you choose the longer line, no one's going to race you towards it. No one cares to get in that line. 
And then just stand there. As you begin any of these particular slowing practices, like we get in that like batting cage or you're in that place, intentionally pray a prayer of surrender and say, Lord Jesus, I surrender myself to your presence right now in the moment, to your path, whatever the outcome will be. And I'm going to do it at your pace. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray this. There's moments, another practice of what I call stilling. So you surrender, you slow, you still. What is still? Not distill, but still. The practice was one that Jesus did often. On a regular, consistent basis, Jesus stopped, he hit the pause button, and he spent some time with his Father. In fact, the Word of God seems to tell us that he did that somewhat on a daily basis. Mark one thirty five says, after a really busy day, I mean a really busy day of ministering on the Sabbath, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed, where he met with his father. He stilled his life. And if you go on in that verse, you'll see it was really important he did because God, his father, had a mission for him that he needed to stay connected to at a pace that he needed to be at. And if you want to know, follow and become like Jesus, which is our mission here, individually and as a church, it will require the practice of stilling, of getting quiet. You call it a quiet time where you spend time. Even if you start with five minutes and you get a daily bread or one of these kind of helps, if you want help on something like that, please just contact me. I would love to help you in that. In, in that. But where you just stop and you read God's word and you pray. And then weekly... Jesus seemed to hit the pause button on a weekly basis. And I celebrate with all of you here, and, and those of you who are watching on the whatever live stream, you should be here. But anyway, um, <laughs> where's that camera anyway? Anyway, so Luke 4.16 says this, He went to Nazareth, Jesus did, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. On a consistent basis, weekly, Jesus hit the pause button of his life, slowed down his life, and went to worship with others. Yes, Jesus went to church. Weekly, as was his custom. And I kind of just think if Jesus, who is God in flesh appearing, found it necessary to still his life daily and to still his life weekly, that's probably a goody, pretty good practice to make in our lives. And the last one is what I call solitude. This is something that's a little different. If you think of a car, you can put it this way. The idea of surrender is you say, you know what, there's a car manual here. If I run it in the red too long, I'm going to probably burn out the motor. So I need to surrender to what the manual tells me to do. And then there's this idea, when you think about a car, and you, you think of this whole idea of slowing, it's probably wise that I don't be driving miles way past my limit, so it's probably good to go within that limit. And then think of this, when you think of stillness, in the sense that you know, every once in a while, you better stop and get gas in your car or what? You'll be running on fumes, and you'll be spending a lot more time than the few minutes it took to just still yourself and get some gas. Solitude is this, though. It's what I call the seasonal tune-up. It's what you find in the life of Jesus, often in his life. When he started, he went into the wilderness for a period of time. When he chose his disciples, he went away for a period of time. When John the Baptist died, he went away for a, a period of time and, got, and took him in, in, in a place of solitude. When he sent the 12 and then the 72 out, he went away and there was time of solitude. What was he doing? It's like in a car. Don't you, in a car, seasonally, you usually get a tune-up, right? You want to make sure the fluids are good. You want to make sure you, the tires are good. You want to make sure everything's ready for the next season. 
And one of the things I haven't done well, which I'm going to start doing well, is those seasonal tune-ups where you actually take some time. And I know everybody's life is different, so you've got to figure it out. Whether it's a half day or a day or a couple days, whatever you can do, you need to set some time where you get aside and you do the seasonal tune-up and you say, God, I just need to kind of pull the structures out of my life for a moment. Henry Allen says, in solitude... I get rid of my scaffolding. Scaffolding is all the stuff we use to keep ourselves propped up to convince ourselves that we are important and okay. John Orpig writes in The Life You've Always Wanted, solitude is the one place where we can gain freedom from the forces of society that will otherwise relentlessly mold us. And Jesus says, follow me, spend time with me, let me mold you and transform you. There are need for seasonal times of solitude and it may mean courageously taking your calendar and marking on it and saying I'm taking this half day to just pull apart and get away or it may mean for you to look at your vacation and instead of staying at the same pace actually taking one where you intentionally change your pace and don't come home exhausted I wrote as I was writing this be addicted to God his presence, his path, and his pace, and you will be addicted or mastered by nothing else. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. I'm going to take a moment and pray, but I, I, I want to have you to have a, just a moment or two of silence here. And I, I just want you to say, these words with me. They're just going to be up there. It says, let's say it together, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I ask you to bow your head, and I'm going to say this over you, and I just want you to take a moment to be still. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. of God speak to your heart it may be in an area right now where he's saying I want to teach you how to walk at my pace just listen to what his spirit might say I believe the spirit of God might be saying to some of you you're in a place in your life maybe you've never done this before or you know Maybe 20 years ago you did this, or five years ago, in the path you've been on, and the pace it's been, has left you without the presence of God. And today might be one of the most important commitments you make, not before me or before others, but before God, where you say, God, I surrender my heart to you come into my life and begin to lead me I commit to follow you Father thank you I know there are churches all around the country that are taking some time just to be silent in your presence have mercy on us. Thank you for extending grace. Strengthen our faith.
Make us like your son, Jesus. And we might know, follow, and become like him. Amen.